Hello everybody, it's Kazzy here. I am so excited to be starting season three again. I can't believe it. We've had a bit of time away and we are back and better than ever. And to kick off the start of a new season, I am actually doing a giveaway. So I'm unbelievably excited to have my first guest, Sophie Williams, the absolute brains behind the official Millennial Black Instagram. She is a two-time author. She is a TEDx speaker. Uh, She is hugely inspirational and you will definitely hear me properly fangirl in this episode so I apologize I'm going to be giving away her two incredible books to one lucky winner Um, her first book which is an introduction to activism and her second book which is the official guide for black women in the workplace all you have to do is go on to my Instagram page which is at the uncertainties and like the post and tag a few of your friends that you think would enjoy the book and I will be announcing the winner in a couple of weeks time I'm going to be announcing it on the week of the 26th of July so you've got a little bit of time to enter so I hope that everybody does and I also hope that you really enjoy this episode as much as I did bye Welcome to The Uncertainties, the podcast for 20-somethings who don't quite have their shit together yet. I'm your host, Karis, and I started this podcast because the last few years have been a huge learning curve for me. Entering the world of work, moving out of my family home, trying and often failing to live up to the challenges of being a fully-fledged adult. It can be overwhelming at the best of times, and I know that I'm not the only person who feels like this because I'm going to be speaking to a bunch of my friends and people that I admire about the struggles that they have faced and how they are able to absolutely smash life. Today's guest is an author, TEDx London speaker, diversity and inclusion consultant, contributing writer for several magazines, and of course, the brains behind the huge Instagram account, Official Millennial Black. After the devastating and violent murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and Armand Arbery in the US last year, her posts about anti-racist work got over a quarter of a million likes, garnering attention from around the world, including pop sensation Justin Bieber, and her book, Anti-Racist Ally, An Introduction to Action and Activism, which she wrote in only eight days, has sold copies internationally, making it onto almost every introduction to activism list there is. It's inspired many, including myself, to look at their actions and how they can create change in their own life and workplace. Her new book, Millennial Black, The Ultimate Guide for Black Women at Work, is a labour of love that has been years in the making. Amongst all the insightful statistics about black women in the workplace, its main purpose is to give productive tips on how we move forward to create a more inclusive landscape and inspire positive change. So welcome, Sophie Williams. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I know it's been um, it's been a very busy time for you. Um, how how are you doing at the moment? I'm good, thank you. I was just saying it's like the start of a very busy day. So we're doing this at ten and back to back now until I think about eight. So um, I'm just here, like hair wet, like <laughs> you know, just trying to figure out my day. But yeah, very happy to be spending my morning with you. Oh no, I'm honestly, it's like, I feel a little bit, um, <laughs> a little bit starstruck because I've been following you for such a long time. And I think I mentioned this before, but I feel 
or have felt that we have quite an affinity because we had quite similar education. We both went to Leeds and uh, similar kind of working career thus far. So um, I've been following you for such a long time and it, it's like just really kind of kind of crazy that we're actually able to do this chat. So no, I feel, um, feel very lucky to be able to, to grab you for this amount of time. I'm an actual literal idiot. So do not feel worried at all. I'm just like, <laughs> do not worry. Everything's fine. I'm just a dumb just a dumb girl <laughs> not at all a dumb girl who's written two amazing books which I've put right here yeah, um, okay. <laughs> uh, but I have so many questions for you so I feel like let's just jump straight in um, so almost overnight you became recognized as a leader in conversation surrounding diversity and inclusion and moving the conversation on to how every person can become anti-racist in their actions, which is such a ginormous achievement. I think what I would love to know is, was there a specific moment uh, in your childhood or your adolescence um, that was kind of that turning point that like kind of lit that fire in your belly to think, you know, I I reject the status quo and, and really helped you to move into activism? No, I don't think there's any sort of defining moment. I think I've always been someone who has not been good at picking their battles. And so I've always been someone who will make a fuss when something's not right, sort of. And I think uh, I think I was always a very sort of headstrong person. I've always sort of known sort of who I am and what I want and what I will and won't stand for. And so, um, yeah, I think I've always just made made things my business and I think um I'm as surprised as anyone else that that sort of didn't become my downfall but became something that started to be celebrated no completely and it's so it's amazing to have that that in you I think because a lot especially from like a young age because I think a lot of people do just kind of swallow and accept things so to have that within you to just always kind of reject that notion and 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 feel comfortable enough to know when you don't feel comfortable and be vocal about it is such a uh it's a, such a gift and a strength of character I think in a person I think I'm only just getting to that stage now I was like a mid-20s uh person so it's it's a huge um it's a huge thing I think thanks I think it's got me in a lot of trouble like people don't like it when you're like a mouthy kid who's like asking why this is like that or saying like no I'm I'm actually not going to be doing that thing that you want me to do um and like I said I think a lot of people presume that that would sort of be uh, a hardship for me or a downfall for me not just being able to like go with the flow but um seems like it's turned out okay so well, yeah it's worked pretty well so yeah I say keep doing what you're doing if anything um, I also wanted to talk about the anthology, This Is How We Come Back Stronger, which you were a contributing writer for, because um, it was written just weeks after George Floyd's murder and in the context of a world that had completely erupted in anger. Um, and firstly, I just think it's it's incredible that you were able to write during uh, what I imagined to be a very difficult time. I know that I was really struggling in, in those those initial weeks following the murder um so I wanted to just know what that experience was like for you uh it was awful yeah was a time when I was unexpectedly sort of thrust thrust into this spotlight and people were trying to have this conversation about race and about 
racial inequalities and about sort of the systems and the structures that we live in. And I was also trying to figure that out and trying to think about what to say and what to think and how to say it. But I think whilst most people were doing that sort of on their own or, you know, with their partners, with their close friends, I was doing that very visibly sort of online because I made a few posts which I didn't expect anything to happen with, which suddenly, as you mentioned, went everywhere. And, you know, I was seeing them pop up on you know feeds from around the world and being translated into Icelandic and Mandarin and Japanese and um, all of the like, just the, the depth of that penetration of that message wasn't something I was prepared for. And so I wrote the piece for This Is How We Come Back Stronger, which I think might be one of my favorite things I've ever written, um, just in one sitting on my phone, in my notes app um, at 4 a.m. because I wasn't sleeping ever. I was thinking about race and racial injustice and the people who we kept seeing being murdered in front of us. And I was trying to engage with every person who wanted to engage with me because so for so long, my whole life, I've been having these conversations and I've been saying, this is bullshit and we need to change this, we need to fix this. And no one on a wider scale had been open to having these conversations. And now suddenly people were willing to listen and it felt like a huge responsibility. Like if you've been trying to do this and no one's listened, when they do start listening, it feels like a huge pressure to be like, all right, it's go time, let's make this happen. Mm. So I was trying to respond to every single comment, every single um, message, to the extent that Instagram blocked me because they were like, you are clearly a bot. This is not how people use this platform. Oh my God, did they actually? No way. Yeah, there's an interaction here, it turns out. I didn't know that, but now I do. <laughs> um, but before I knew about the interactions limit, I was up at 4am, like community managing and answering um, messages and doing all of that stuff. And I had been asked to write this piece for This Is How We Become That Stronger. And I just couldn't think about when I would ever have time to do that. Um, and so I just started, yeah, tapping away in my notes app while my partner was asleep and my cat was like trying to, you know, cause cat havoc in the night. <laughs> um, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. But I think it's a really intense piece. I think it, you know, talks about lockdown, talks about, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd in particular and Belly Majinga and yeah it was a, a strange moment but I feel like I was able to capture my experience of it in a way that I'm happy with. That's amazing I think um, yeah I suppose also you just saying that you wrote it in the middle of the night there's something incredibly kind of vulnerable and, and raw as well about when you're left alone with your thoughts at that that time to kind of tap into so I, I I imagine that it's a very kind of vulnerable and honest piece. Um, I also found it quite interesting because uh, the the book, This Is How We Come Back Stronger, it's an anthology that has essays, short fiction, poetry and more, and it's responding to the personal and political uh, in the time of the pandemic, but also considering how we can move forward. And I think that's so interesting because especially at that time, we just were in such, I hate to use the word unprecedented times. I feel like that was like the buzzword of 2020 and I never want to hear it ever again. But, um, you know, talking about uncertainty, my God, did we had absolutely no idea 
when things were going to go back to normal, if they were going to go back to normal and what the new normal would look like. Um, so I guess I just wanted to know how were you at such a difficult time able to look forward and what did you en envisage, I guess? I don't think I was. I was, um, the piece is, I think, very retrospective and they asked me to, to change or to add an ending about like what's next. And I was just like, I don't know. And I wrote that, I guess, oh, I guess just like maybe a year ago this week. Oh, wow. And I, um, yeah, I just didn't, it didn't feel like whatever I expected would be next, would be what would be next. And I'm glad I didn't try and take a guess about what would happen next. Because if you'd said to me then, oh, will you still be, in like a lockdown and I know we're not quite in lockdown but I sort of haven't fully understood that yet and I still just like live in my house all the time um I just wouldn't have had a good idea of what was next and I didn't feel particularly hopeful and that's um yeah that's a real through line because you know people wanted me to talk in October of 2020 at Black History Month events about like, you know, how far we've come since, you know, the events of the summer, or they wanted me to talk um, this year on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder about the great progress that we've made. And I don't do those events and I don't have those conversations because sure, maybe some things have changed, but one year, six months, that's not the time we celebrate the, the progress that we've made. That's the time that we regroup and we figure out what we're doing next because the situation that we're in, not necessarily the pandemic, but the situation in terms of um, racial injustice, which is sort of my main, my main area of sort of work and, and speaking and research. Um, that isn't a situation we got into in a year. That mm. is centuries, yeah. is centuries and generations of thoughts and structures and actions and you know disadvantages and inequality and to think that we can after three months six months 12 months say well well done we fixed that yeah. that is something I'm finding really frustrating at the moment and so I find it really hard to answer questions about what's next because like what's next is probably just really really tiny changes that we don't notice until we look back in 50 years and we say, okay, that was the start of something. And, we, you know, so, I, yeah, I find that a really hard um, topic to sort of really drill into. Yeah, I know. It, it, that seems insane, actually, when you say when you say it out loud as well, you just realise, like, how can you think in October that in a matter of that's essentially two months that we've made any kind of seismic change just seems yeah. really naive but I actually I remember listening to you on a podcast recently you were, and you were talking about generational uh generational Planning. work yeah. yeah and I think that's exactly what that speaks to the idea that um the work that we're doing and it should always be um selfless of course but it, it truly is selfless in the way that um that we will never actually see the change in probably in our lifetime we're really we're laying the foundations for um you know the next generation the next generation for their lives to be a fraction easier and for them to be able to navigate life a bit a bit easier and I think that's exactly um what you've touched on there is that that we need to be looking at generational 
change and the work that we put in there instead of of um yeah like snapping our fingers and being like racism's done or yeah we fixed that yeah I think I think what you're saying is completely true and completely right but we're not really building the foundations because people have been doing this work for a really long time and I think part of the difficulty is I think a lot of those conversations earlier this year and it's sort of in the latter half of last year were about this new problem this new thing that we're working on and it's absolutely not and I know that you know that but it's not um and that's also part of why the the solve isn't immediate because this is a problem that has been in existence for centuries but people just haven't given a fuck mm. and so it continues and so you know I am nowhere near the first person to do this kind of work it's just you know we've had things that we've seen people murdered in public we've had people with the ability to film that and show that to the world and that has happened at a time when we are all as a world experiencing something really strange we're all as a world living through a pandemic we're all inside our homes and so something that happens on the streets of another country is just as close as something that happens outside your door when you can't go outside your door and so I think it's no coincidence that all of um the pandemic and the resurgence of the conversation around racial equality have happened at the same time um but yeah we're we're very much building on the foundations of people who've been doing this work for a long time for a long long time completely agreed if there is one thing um that that you would like to see um I guess it, if you look back on kind of, let's say 90 year old you looks back and there's there's one thing that you would love to see within your generation to change what do you think that would be I don't know I don't even know what to imagine could be possible or could be realistic like I mean the ultimate aim is I want everyone to be treated equally regardless yeah. of their race or gender or sexuality or neurodivergence physical ability will we achieve that in my lifetime no absolutely not and we will find new groups that we start to treat badly because people are invested in having a group who is lower who is lower than them in society to make them feel better because race is a construct we know that race isn't real race is a sociological construct made by white people um in order to and we we see the same with something like the holocaust the first thing that people do is decide this group of people is not people and so we can blame them for all of our problems and we can treat them as badly as we want um so i don't know because i don't know how to make long-term equitable process progress in a world which is so invested in having and us and them. So I, I don't know, sorry, I know you're asking me a hopeful question, but I'm just not in a hopeful mood today. <laughs> Completely fair enough. No, I mean, that was a very difficult question. I don't, I don't know what I would want if I was asked the same thing. Um, it's, it's so interesting hearing you talk about, about that period of your life and how you suddenly, with literally overnight, just became so visible in the conversations that that you were having um and I just I guess I think 
um, one of the things that hinders a lot of people from, from openly having conversations is the worry of saying something wrong. That's always what you hear. It's like, I'm not educated enough or I haven't read all of the things or um, I just don't feel in a position where I'm ready to, to outwardly have those conversations. I was just wondering um, for you, how, how like, do you feel anxious kind of um, having to play out all of these conversations in real time in such a public space? And, and how do you reconcile with that for, for people who, who are really interested in doing the work and probably have done the work, but are too afraid within themselves to have conversations in the workplace or with their friends or with their family? What is the advice that you would, would give to them, I guess, to, to take that, that leap? Um, that you're going to get it wrong you are like it's not like you might make a mistake you're gonna make mistakes like the the work that we do is hard and it's complicated it's nuanced the language around it is changeable and moves quickly and you can do something that you are sure is right and you will be told that it is wrong and you have to get comfortable with that the post that I first made and it's worth noting that I made those posts that we're talking about, which are like little pink infographic squares with black text, which sort of talk about anti-racism and allyship. Um, I made those posts when I had like under a thousand followers, far, far under a thousand followers. I had nothing to lose in doing that. I had a background where I worked in social media for a long time. Social is what I know how to do. And so that was how I sort of processed my feelings and sort of tried to be useful but there was nothing to lose there's just a couple of hundred people there like it wasn't scary to do it's not the same as going up to your boss and you know talking about something that is physically personally emotionally damaging to you or or intervening in something in the street what I did was a lot easier and whilst it then changed to put me in a position of having to decide if I wanted to carry on those conversations, if I wanted to be associated as being like a face of those conversations. Um, the initial step for me wasn't hard because no one was looking and I didn't expect anyone to, to come, although they did. Um, and which I'm really pleased about because I'm pleased that people want to engage in that conversation. Um, so for people who wanted to be part of making change I always say that you will make mistakes like you can't wait until you are certain that you've read or watched or listened to everything because you do not have time for that mm -hmm. like you will never do that and if you want to do that you will never feel ready to start your work and so you have to start from where you are part of that work has to be to continue to educate yourself as you go along and you have to be open to feedback. It's really hard. Like when I first started posting, I talked about um, minorities, people who are minorities, black and brown people. We're not a minority, we are a global majority. And so I have had to take feedback that that is not the right term to use. And I've had to um, change the language that I use with that knowledge. But it's really easy to take feedback as a personal attack. But what it really is, is someone has taken the time to say to you, I have this knowledge and I'd like to share it with you. Is this useful for you? 
And once you can appreciate feedback in those terms, it makes it easier to say, I'm so sorry, I didn't, I didn't understand that. I didn't realize that. And I can do better going forwards. But it's just about having that openness to saying, thank you. I didn't know that. Let me try and do better now. A hundred percent. As you say, as soon as you take yourself out of that situation and you don't take it as a personal attack or, um, and you, and it's more of like a thank you and, and a thank you and, and it becomes much more of a collaborative conversation to, um, it, it, it just enables the conversation to continue to move forward. So I think that's, um, it's a really important thing to kind of take away. Um, feedback in in the culture that we live in we don't give constructive feedback very often we um I think are much more comfortable telling people how much we like them than telling people sort of where the opportunities for growth are and so that means we're not often used to receiving that feedback when it's meant helpfully we're used to that feedback being meant in a mean way and it's definitely not something that comes naturally I don't think to to many people if any people like I fucking hate getting feedback I hate being told I've done something wrong and I've had to learn to see that as a useful thing and not to be sort of defensive about it so you know if you do do something wrong and you make a mistake you have to I think be conscious in that moment of taking it on and assessing is this useful feedback because not all feedback you get is useful like someone coming into my posts and saying well you're racist because you don't want to uplift white people you're uh whatever you're not a real black person which I get a lot um those points of view are not useful feedback to me and so you have to sort of have that sort of filtering system of is this meant as useful constructive feedback or is this someone trying to be mean and once you can sort of filter that through you can then uh, recognize and build on the useful feedback that you're getting yeah totally I think um, I would actually love to talk to you about this from that that specific piece of criticism because I wanted to talk about colorism um, and uh, how I think colorism as a, as a term um, has definitely kind of started making its way into public consciousness and public discourse, especially I would say in kind of the last six to nine months. I think before that people might have heard the term but weren't kind of aware of it, of, uh, of what it necessarily meant. So um, for those who don't really understand colorism, it's kind of the nuance of, of racism that touches on um, the colour of a person's skin and the proximity to light, uh, lightness, to whiteness, and therefore your your kind of proximity to privilege. So um, the lighter colour your skin is, the kind of closer you are to that to that privilege. And um, as both kind of mixed race women, I think it's such an interesting conversation to have because it it, it I don't. I would love to understand your experience and I, that criticism that you got is absolutely horrific. But I, I think it's very interesting because it shows the nuance of the conversation. And I think we've seen it play out actually very recently with, I don't know if you've watched um, Leanne from Little Mix, her documentary, yeah? Uh, but 
she's also mixed race and she has a kind of a round table at one point with with other um female black artists so I think there's like Alexandra Burke and Keisha from the Sugar Babes and uh Ray and 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 others and they talk about colorism within the industry and um and they kind of have this really frank conversation where they, where she asks do you think I would be where I am now do you think I would have got into the band if I was a few shades darker and they all say probably not and it's quite a um, devastate you can just see in her face it's a really devastating moment and a very kind of horrible realization um but I also found it interesting because when she announced that she was doing the documentary she got a lot of backlash from within the community um and I think I think being mixed race is a very interesting and unique perspective to have um and can can also be quite difficult to navigate because you're straddling uh, cultures that are so diametrically opposed. So I wanted, I guess, to kind of understand your experience of that. Because I know that you've spoken in the past, of wor- not worrying, I guess, but just the fact that you are aware that you're that you've uh, benefited from, you know, the light skin privilege, and and understanding how to toe the line, I suppose, of lifting up the community, but also needing to kind of pass the mic and and how to kind of navigate that, I guess. I, that was a very poorly worded question. Yeah, it's really tricky. And I have never had to um, question my blackness in the same way as I have since uh, like this year, these last 12 months. And I think, um, so for your listeners, I am a very light-skinned mixed race woman with like blue eyes and freckles. I am sort of very proximate to whiteness. Um, And I'm very aware that my experience is not the same as it would be if I were a darker-skinned black woman, just the same as my experience wouldn't be the same as if I was in a wheelchair or if I was a queer woman, like, there are all of these sort of intersections of our identities that we take for granted, um, but have a real impact on our lived experiences and our expectations and people's expectations of us and our outcomes. Um, so yeah, I'm very aware that I am a mixed race woman talking about um, talking about race. Um, I identify as black. I've always identified as black. Society identifies me as black, and um that is something that I am having to sort of have spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to sort of navigate and negotiate and if we're millennial black which is my book about black women in the workplace I I think even open that by saying I know that I'm probably not the person who you were hoping would tell the story about blackness in the workplace but I am the person through those layers of societal privilege who has been given that opportunity um, and the opportunity didn't come because of my Instagram. I already had the book deal, which is why I started the Instagram to sort of build up that community. Um, but yeah, I think it's really tricky. And the like, I got a book review yesterday that was like, I looked at the author's name and the name stood out to me. So I Googled it and I found out that this is like secretly written by a mixed race woman and why is she talking about our experiences and just like because I'm also a black person I think the the 
the mixed race experience is so unique and I, I wonder if it's actually relatively similar to the bisexual experience of not actually being fully recognized by by either, either. yeah I think about this all the time because you're yeah you're not fully accepted really um and that can be quite a difficult thing to kind of reconcile with in, within yourself because you never really have a, a sense of belonging I guess yeah and so for millennial black I was really mindful of there must be other people who have pitched other books like this and haven't been given a yes. I was given a yes when I pitched this book. That is a privilege. And I think privileges are areas of responsibility. So how can I use that privilege? How can I use that responsibility in the best way that I can? So I tried to loop in as many um, wide ranging voices as I could. Lots of dark skinned black women, lots of queer black women, lots of uh, black women who are neurodivergent, lots of, so so many different perspectives because I think society would have us believe that there is one way of being a black woman and we don't do that to groups like white men we would never say to someone what is the white male experience but I get asked a lot what is the black female experience in the UK um, and people want us to be a monolith so they can understand one of us and that is to understand all of us and I think we have to acknowledge that we are wide ranging within our community but that is not to say I do not recognize the privilege of my proximity to whiteness and I think sometimes people get confused by that and think that I mean that I have full white privilege which I don't but I do have the privilege of being very proximate to whiteness and in a society that uplifts whiteness the closer you are to that as an ideal the easier things are for you, the closer you are to maleness as an ideal, the easier things are for you. Sort of those fewer um, marginalized intersectional identities you have, the easier your time is. So that's why I acknowledge that I am very privileged. That's why I try to loop in other voices as much as I can. And that's why when I do work for brands or I get approached by brands, I will very often say, you do not need someone who looks like me I can look at adverts, I can look at TV shows and I can see myself represented well. If you want to do this, you need to reach out to people who do not see themselves in the same way and with the same ease as I do, because that's how you're part of making change. So yeah, I try to do my best. I'm not sure that I've always done it right. And it makes me sad when people sort of um, think that they can decide what my identity is for me. I think that's really hard um but yeah I'm trying and I'm going to continue to try to sort of navigate that nuance no completely and um I think another thing that I think you may have said it on a podcast recently but something that really struck a chord with me is um that actually your um being mixed race and that proximity to whiteness means that you're able to fight the fight and continue to have the conversations and the really uncomfortable hard conversations that are probably much more taxing for a darker skinned mm -hmm. person and I think in that way you're really and that is very very true and I think in that way it's such a service because as you say like yeah because I, I often think I'm like gosh like how does Sophie have it in her like to how does she have that like power to to continue to get up every day and just like fight that fight but I think you've explained it perfectly that actually you are the perfect person 
well you know you're you're a very good person for that because you you can have that conversation time and time again that a lot of other people might find much more difficult much more yeah emotionally taxing um much kind of harder on their their mental health so um yeah I think I I really um when you said that I really it really struck struck a chord in me Um, it's absolutely true like I know what it's like but I don't suffer from it every day and that's why I talk about allyship as well I don't want people who are feeling this on their own skin to be the people who are forced to be the voices of change when you are suffering from something every day that is exhausting and that is not a burden that we can ask you to then pick up so yeah again I feel like privileges are areas of responsibility and my proximity to whiteness is a privilege and I need to use that to have these conversations and to take that burden away from other people who do not need to have that put on their shoulders so yeah I'm very lucky and I'm very lucky that sort of my proximity to whiteness is also viewed as non-threatening and that means that I'm able to access spaces and rooms and conversations and people that would not be open as easily to a darker skinned person or a person without sort of my unique experiences and so yeah that's a big motivation for why I continue to do this work because because I can and because it doesn't hurt me as much as it would hurt other people. Completely I think that's really important um I recently watched your your TED talk which was fantastic Mm. so um your TED talk was about a concept uh called the glass cliff so this is really interesting because I think most people would know the glass ceiling I think that's that's a term that that most people would understand and recognize but the glass cliff is just I'd never heard of it before I had no idea what it was and I find that really fascinating as well that it's it's not a uh, a recognized term um I was wondering whether or not you'd be able to in very simple layman terms because I realized that your your entire speech was like 13 minutes but just um kind of very simply explain what the glass cliff is to people who don't know yes but I have not found a good pithy sound bite <laughs> for it yet so it's going to be a little bit longer than you want it to be I'm pretty That's sure That's absolutely fine <laughs> So the glass cliff is a situation, and you'll notice that some of this will be word for word what you heard in my TED talk, because again, <laughs> this is the best way i found to express it. Love it. Um, the glass cliff is a situation that lots of underrepresented leaders find themselves in when they manage to break through the glass cliff. And when I say underrepresented leaders, I mean those who are most underrepresented at the most senior levels of business, so anyone who's not both white and male. So what we find when we look at when people who aren't both white and male, um, so racially marginalized men or women overall, are appointed to the most senior leadership positions, so like board member, CEO, what we find when we look at um, those appointments is that those businesses that make those appointments are more likely than not to have already been in a period of at least five consecutive months of poor business performance. That could be like a reputational scandal, that could be a hit to revenue or market value, but there is research from the University of Utah and the University of Exeter, which both looked at, one looked at Fortune 500 companies over a 15 year period, one looked at FTSE 100 companies, and they found the same thing. Businesses that are in trouble are more likely to appoint underrepresented leaders. So these people have broken through the glass ceiling, 
but they've got into this now position where they've been appointed for roles where their chances of success are limited before they've even begun because the businesses that are bringing them in are already in trouble. And so these people are less likely to be able to be successful in their roles. And so they're more likely to fall off the edge of this invisible cliff. And that's made even more likely by the fact that what we see is that these people are often not hired with the expectation that they're going to make transformational change. Instead, they're hired with the expectation that they'll be like a good leader. They'll be, they have good soft skills and they'll make the teams feel better. So because they're not employed with the expectation that they'll make this change, they're not given the tools or the time needed to make that change. So that's the first part of it. The second part is we really double down on their lack of probability of success because what we see in businesses is that sort of senior leadership layer is primarily white and male. White males enter the workforce on about um, 35% representation in that sort of junior cohort. But by the time we get to the C-suite, that's ballooned up to about 65%, according to the Lean In Foundation. And so they're the only group that sort of have the opposite of the glass ceiling. Instead of looking up and not seeing yourself at all, they look up and see nothing but themselves. But that changes when they have a leader who's not both white and male. And when that happens, what they self-report is feeling less invested in the business and less able to personally identify with the business. And so their work performance suffers. And when your senior team isn't performing, your chances of a leader of being successful are once again diminished. But if that's not all they do, they also stop managing the teams that they're employed to look after. But they don't stop managing them equally. They mostly stop managing, supporting, nurturing, developing people who they are meant to look after who aren't both white and male. So the leader has a really reduced chance of success because their team are not sort of rallying behind them and doing the work. And what would be the next generation of underrepresented leaders is stopped from coming up because they're not getting the same investment support development as their non-white, no, as their white and um, male peers. And so it's like a double bite. So the leader's chance of success is reduced and the next generation's chance of finding that success is also reduced from the start. It's not, I've not got a, a quick pithy way of explaining <laughs> it yet. No, 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 you've, you've uh, captured it so perfectly. Um, and I, I found it really fascinating. I don't know, um, I don't know if you uh, read the story, um, but I watched your, your TED talk, uh, which was a few, a couple of months ago now. And at this exact same time, the KPMG for all kind of happened. And uh, for those who don't know, it was um, that the CEO had to step down because of, as you say, rep a reputational um, issue where uh, he was caught on, um, on camera saying some quite offensive things to his employees. And they decided to bring in two women uh, to replace him. So it was Mary O'Connor and um, Bina Mehta. And it was the first time that either role had been occupied by a woman in 150 years of the firm. And I just found it so fascinating that these two, it was just so coincidental that the, the, I, I listened to your speech and this happened at exactly the same time. Um, and I think it's, it's literally the perfect example in, in real time of, of exactly what you're saying. Um, but it, it's just so fascinating because it's, it's not 
something that is spoken about very often um but is clearly happening in you know kpmg is is a huge public facing company that i think most people recognize and if it's happening there then you can only imagine in other companies um that that it you know exactly the same thing is is also going on um and if you think about someone like theresa may whatever you think of her as a person she fully got glass cliffed she absolutely got glass cliffed yeah she took on the role when the person who caused the problem had stepped away she had been very clear that she didn't want a brexit she was left to negotiate a brexit deal which she wasn't able to be successful in doing and then boris johnson took over proposed worse terms and was able to close that deal she got fully glass cliffed she absolutely did gosh but I would also just like to talk about about preparing for a TED talk because I imagine that it's months and months of preparation. Um, it's a your speech, I think, is just over thirteen minutes in total. Um, and am I right in thinking that that you have absolutely no kind of like cue cards? It's all completely memorized, which is insane. So I actually was just quite curious to understand what your process was leading up to to doing the TED talk. Um, yeah, like how, how did you prepare for it? Was it quite daunting? How do you memorise? Yeah, so I didn't know until recently that people apply to do TED Talks. So my experience was that they came to me and were like, will you do a TED Talk for us? And at that point, it was, gonna, it was a TEDx London talk. Um, I didn't know that TEDx's could get upgraded to be TED Talks, but mine did a couple of weeks ago, which was very exciting. Um, and I got myself a little necklace that says TED. So I like, love it trying to learn to celebrate my successes yeah of course it's amazing um but yeah so they asked me to do it and they initially wanted me to do it on allyship and I was like "Mm, no I don't (laughs) want to do that um and they were like no no but we really do want you to do that and I was like "Mm -hmm, okay cool but I'm not gonna so I suggested the glass cliff and they were like "Mm, well women don't really talk about business and black women really talk about blackness so that's really sort of the the angle we'd like you to talk about we'd like you to we really like you to do this allyship thing and we don't think this sort of business angle is the one and I was like okay if I'm if I'm doing this here's what I'm going to be talking about and they were like okay cool fine we'll do it and so I discovered about the glass cliff um when I was researching for millennial black um because I was like there must be I wanted to have a chapter called black lady boss which I wasn't allowed but is definitely funny and should have been allowed yeah um and I wanted to be like what what is the experience um more widely of having or being a black lady boss and so I already had the foundation for what became my talk because I had that chapter so it's just about sort of narrowing that down and it was a weird time to do it because it was meant to happen in December and it was meant to be, where was it meant to be? At um, Festival Hall. So like, like at the South Bank, it was meant to be like yeah. a really cool thing that we were doing at the South Bank. Yeah. And then COVID kept COVIDing and that wasn't able to happen. And it kept getting sort of delayed and delayed. And it finally happened in um, February at Abbey Road, um, but with no audience, just, you know, they put some chairs out and they're like, imagine people are from here to here, deliver the deliver this talk. And so the process of, of learning it was um, just talking out loud to myself 
all day, every day saying these words. And um, one of my neighbours um, was with their parents because they were there and then lockdown happened and they weren't able to come back. So I was there looking after their plants, which was really helpful to me because I just had a space where I could go and just talk out loud without sort of, you know, driving my partner up the wall <laughs> in our open plan flat. So it's just like lots and lots of practicing, lots and lots of, you know, even just like being mindful of like stand up, do your talk standing up, do your talk as though there are people there. Like it was just, yeah, it was really interesting experience. It was really overwhelming. It was really scary. And I tried for a while to get out of having to do it because I was just like, I can't do a TED talk. This is too scary. I don't want to, I don't want to try. Um, but I had a, I've got a really nice partner and a really supportive partner who was just like, well, you can do this. And you're going to be doing it on Thursday so shall we practice it again um so yeah it's just like I think last year was a year where things just unexpectedly kept happening to me and there were good things but I had to learn to be open to them instead of being scared of them no absolutely um I'd say it's it's such a good um it's such a good talk and I would highly recommend anyone who hasn't already to check it out it's on YouTube and I saw that it's also being put onto the TED Talks Daily podcast as well so you can access it um kind of anywhere so I'd highly highly recommend and uh pardon it's currently on the on the TED.com homepage yes I saw which is incredible it's so cool and I, I think the reason is because it's resonated with a lot of people and um I've seen the kind of overwhelmingly positive response and the comments that it's uh, that the, the talk has received. So yeah, I mean, it's a huge achievement and you must feel incredibly proud. The thing that I would love to ask you, um, and I know that we haven't really been able to touch too much on on the book, although you actually do talk about the glass uh, cliff in the book as well, uh, but your, your new book, which was uh, published on the 15th of April, um, you've got a whole host of incredible contributors um, who have who've added something. So you've got kind of Candice Braithwaite, Monroe Bergdorf, Liv Little, June Sarpong, Naomi Aki, um, who I love. I've just finished watching her um, most recent series of Master of None, which is incredible. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's all, um, it's her and Lena and it's just there. It's so good. It's so, so good. I'd highly recommend. And she's amazing in it. Um, but I just wanted to very, very quickly ask what your experience was like um chatting to to them about their experiences they were all really great and I was really nervous um <laughs> because yeah so I I started reaching out to people I guess um in the end of in the end of 2019 is probably when I started reaching out to people and I had no profile so I was just like essentially just sliding into people's dms and being like <laughs> I think you're cool can I talk to you for an hour for this book I'm writing and I was really shocked every time anyone said yes um yeah and it was just it was just this really exciting thing to to talk to people and to hear their experiences and you know like Naomi Aki who you mentioned I just spoke to for hours just like hearing about what her life had been and what she wanted and how she felt because I think like talking to her was really amazing because she had recently uh, wrapped Star Wars 
and to my mind that's like this incredible thing and to her she was like well you know sometimes achievements don't feel like how you how you imagine that they will feel and you know you have to keep on working keep on trying and I think it really reminded me that we as a group um blackness and womanness are not taught to celebrate our successes we're taught that we have to keep on working and we have to keep on striving no matter how hard or how amazing the thing that we've already achieved is if it doesn't feel exactly like you imagined then it kind of doesn't count and you just feel like you have to keep going and so people like for example people talk to me about like my books and my TED talk and that sort of thing and I'm like no but it does it it doesn't feel like I imagined like the books came out during a pandemic I've never seen them in a shop the um TED talk I did to an empty room so like none of it feels real and so I've had to really sort of force myself to celebrate those things and I think yeah just the opportunity to sort of hear everyone's stories and to see how connected our experiences are was amazing and to say to have the chance to ask every person I interviewed what's your favorite thing about being a black woman and to just see their sort of faces light up and them to just be like yeah I I do love being a black woman and here's some of the stuff I love about it like yeah I'm really happy that I got to do that that is the perfect segue because that was the final thing that I was going to say is that you spoke to every single person about what their favorite thing was about being black and there were some incredible answers I know that June spoke about um, the infectiousness of black joy Liv Little spoke about solidarity uh, within the community Monroe spoke about kind of the sisterhood Um, Vanessa spoke about resilience and uh, Nana uh, spoke about kind of the beauty, the absolute beauty of the culture. And I loved every single one of these answers. So I guess the final thing that I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is uh, I wanted to turn that question back onto you and ask you what your favorite thing is about being a black woman. Cool. I mean, just to call out one of the ones that you mentioned, like Liv also ends by saying, and I love a black woman as well. And I, I just love the inclusion of that. And like, my editors circled it like, is this right? I was like, fuck yes, yeah. it's right. You, <laughs> you leave Liv alone if that's going in the book. Uh, what's my favorite thing about being black, a black woman? I think it's the thing that came up most commonly in my, in my interviewing of people. And it is that community. It's that feeling that we are together and you know you walk down the street and you catch another black woman's eye you'll smile at each other you will like and you'll know that if something happens and you need support these are the people who can and will rally around you not because they are the most uplifted by society not because they are the safest people um you know not because they've got nothing to fear but because we are one community and we are there for each other and we support and uplift and love each other even when we've never met each other before and I think that is so special and beautiful and yeah I love it. No 100% I think it's such a unique experience you've spoken about the kind of intersection and the I guess misogynoir like it's such a unique experience to be both black and a woman and only black women understand that. And I think that's what feeds into that sense of community and solidarity. And I completely agree that it's, that it's an incredibly special thing. Um, Sophie, I don't want to, I realize that um, we're running out of time. Thank you so much um, for 
chatting with me today. Um, I've learned so much more. Again, you're just like a, <laughs> an, a never-ending uh, fountain of knowledge. But um, <laughs> this has been so lovely and I cannot recommend your books uh, enough. I can't recommend the TED Talk enough. Um, yeah, I've just been a huge fan. I can't wait to see to see what, what you do next, really. Thank you. Imagine if you were like, and I cannot recommend your books. They're awful. And I cannot recommend. <laughs> like, okay, uh, that's Categorically, long... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's a long pause after cannot recommend. Okay, got it, cool. <laughs> but no, not at all. Thank you so much for having me. I was having a really grumpy morning and you've helped me to be a little bit less grumpy. So thank you so much. I hope you have a really nice day. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, and if everyone enjoys it, please like, rate and subscribe to the podcast. And I'll be back with another episode very soon. Bye. Bye.